Thank you for joining us today for the Restoration Church podcast. This is the third in our Unify series, and it is titled Before and After. We hope you enjoy. Let me have a moment of confession. We appreciate confession here at Restoration. Uh, I I ordered P90X. I used it twice, and then I went back to sitting on the couch and dreaming about using P90X. And I was like, couldn't wait for the next group to come out that's a little easier but not as complicated, but also gave me ripped abs. So I would go and I'd take my before picture, and it didn't change, right? So but the beauty of the before and after concept is that there's there's an event that happens, and there's time, and then there's change, right? So I'm going to give you some before and after pictures I want you to appreciate today, okay? So the first one is just for shock and awe. Check it out. This is before and after braces. And other dental work, right? Before and after braces and other dental work. That looks pretty good, right? The before action, the before picture? The after picture? Okay, that's kind of How about um, before, does anybody remember the tsunami that hit Japan and there were like boats in the middle of the city? Check it out. Before the cleanup, after the cleanup, right? Crazy. It's drastic. It's very different. How about um, before and after our favorite uh, infomercial in all of history? Right. They're proactive. They're, did they intentionally paint her face red? Like, it, I don't get it. How does your face, like, have red except around your eyes in your before picture? But not after. Um, so, and then here's a good one. Housing renovations. You ever, anybody like HGTV? You like they go in, they flip houses before and after, right? Okay. And because I made you look at teeth first, I'll leave you with something cute at the end, right? So this is before and after time. Diane, click it. Before and after time. Here we go. Oh, just kidding. This is an even better one. Did anybody see the irony of this picture? <laughs> Nothing changed once we got the internet. We still just sit at the office and stare at the computer. Okay. Um, okay, so before and after time. Here you go. You had to look at the teeth first, so it's not figure out if you can get me Make you feel better about yourself. The key to the picture is that um, in the before shot, it has to be horrible. It has to be horrible. Otherwise, there's nothing that changes, right? So in all the workout videos uh, or workout before shots, everybody's they, they poof it out as big as they can poof it. I'm not going to do it right now because we're on camera. This is a live video, right? So um, they poof it out, and they, they shrunk their shoulders, and they have the shrunk, biggest brownie face you could possibly imagine. And then the after picture is... You know, like they're flexing every muscle they got, sucking it all in, big old cheesy smile, and it just looks good. Today, we're going to be in Ephesians chapter 2. We're continuing our series called United, and I, I give you all this before and after picture comments because guess what? There is a before and after picture that Paul's going to paint for us. There are actually two in chapter 2. Next week, we're going to talk about the second one. i got to hold it? No, just pull it up with your mouth. All right. Hey, good morning. There we go. All Next week, we're going to talk about the second before and after picture. Today, we're going to do the individual before and after picture. Okay, so Ephesians chapter 2, we're going to do verses 1 through 10. We're going to stop at verse 3 here and, and get into it, but follow along with me. Open your Bibles, turn on your Bibles, whatever you need to do. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, and of the Spirit who is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we too, all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging in the desires of the flesh and of the mind. And we were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. So, 
That's the before picture. It's pretty bad. Right? If we, if we really look at it, it cannot get much worse. Because the first word that is used to describe the before, the before picture in our life, maybe it's the present picture in your life, the before picture is dead. The first word is dead. Apart from Christ, before, before we know Him, before we know the grace of the cross, we are spiritually dead. And the result, is, this is the result of our sin. Sin kills, sin destroys, it annihilates. We are dead. And the second part is probably one you're way more familiar with. You may not feel dead, right? But you may feel like you're enslaved to your sin. Now, the word enslaved doesn't show up, but the word is there, right? The, the concept is there. The idea is there. Uh, it says, we walked according to the course of this world. That's verse 2. The devil is at work in those of who are disobedient. Verse 2. And then we are slaves to our own cravings. Verse 3. The picture being painted here is someone... It's something that controls us. There's a three-part idea that controls us that we're enslaved to. So we're dead and we're enslaved. It can't get much worse. This is our before picture. Let's talk about this enslavement, the, the world, the flesh, the devil, okay? The world. Our environment, our culture is absolutely against God, right? There, it, we are The world around us is constantly pushing us away from the Father versus pulling us to it, right? Let's think about it. Name any sin you might struggle with. Let's, how about lust? Maybe you struggle with lust. Don't look at any billboard that you drive down the road, right? Or every commercial. Do you remember the Hardee's commercial that tried to sell a big barbecue sandwich? It was huge. And who was eating it? A girl in a bikini. Right? Advertising industry. What sells? Sex sells. Lust. It's promoted in our culture. All over the place. What about greed? Our, everything that we do revolves around the almighty dollar in America. Right? Our economy is built on it. Whether you have enough or you don't have enough, you're constantly looking for ways to save for the future. Uh, if you have a struggle with greed, the entire world is built around an economy that promotes your greed. What about self-centeredness? What if you're just selfish? What if, you're, what if your struggle is not greed or lust or murder or sin or lying? It's there or sin. They're all sin. What if it's just self-centeredness? Every show you watch, every movie we watch, Every book you read probably has something about the main character getting what they want in the end. The focus is themselves. It's self-centeredness. <laughs> Romans 12, 2 says, Do not be conformed any longer to the patterns of this world. It's been fair, prayer phrased pretty good. It's, it's like, don't let the world squeeze you into its mold. And that's what the world is all about doing. It's pushing us into this mold. The before, the before picture of our life is that everywhere we look, Something is trying to push us into a mold that is not like Christ. The devil. The second part of this three-part problem of enslavement. The devil. Ephesians talks more about the spiritual realm than any other book in the New Testament. So it's not surprising that Paul brings up the devil. Or the spirit, the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is working in the sons of disobedience. That's how it describes Satan. We all know the devil made me do it is not a legitimate excuse for anything that we do. Right? I mean, it doesn't remove our responsibility. But there is something about it that's true. There is a There are spiritual forces at work in this world that we don't see with our eyes, but we know are very real in our lives. There are demonic influences. There is a prince of this earth that is constantly trying to push us away from knowing the Father and knowing life in Him. The devil is real. And he's a problem. He's our enemy. 
the demonic influences are all around us, and they're promoting disobedience to God. Finally, the flesh. Sin is not something that's just outside of us. It's not something that someone else is doing to us, like the Satan. It's not outside of us like the world. It is in us. We have, we are sin in and of ourselves. We commit sin. It comes from within us. The verse, the verse 3 lists the third that we're enslaved in, our sinful nature, our self. With its desires and evil for evil and self-destruction. It seems strange to, desire, to say that your desires are themselves sin. Or they're, they're self-destructing. But think about it. Um, the problem is that in our simple state, the things that we are taught and encouraged by the world to ultimately want are self-destructive. Right? Whether it's premarital sex. Whether it's alcohol. Whether it's money. Whether it's um, fame. Whatever those things that we're taught in our world to desire and want more of ultimately lead to self-destruction. If anyone has ever struggled with addiction, they know exactly what this looks like, to be enslaved to your own desires. Right? We're told that freedom is getting what you want. Right? Freedom is being able to do anything you want to. But the scripture says freedom is being free from yourself desires that are destructive. So if you've got an addict that's an alcoholic, their, their hope is not to get what they want. Their hope is to be set free in the gospel from their self-destructive desires. The flesh is real. This flesh pulls us away from the fire. The Puritan preacher John Owen uh, described it pretty well. He, he described Satan as a fisherman, the hook as the flesh, and the bait as the world. And whenever we bite, we die. Right? We're the fish. And there's someone pushing strings and controlling to, pull, to kill us, Satan, our enemy. There's a flesh that just we don't really see or notice. And the bait of the world is pulling us to it. And when we bite, we're dead. We get devoured. Romans 3.23, the wages of sin is death. If we're stuck in the before picture, all we have to hope for is death. You are dead. Spiritually dead and enslaved. We try to pick one of these, right? We want to say it's the world or it's the devil or it was my flesh. We try to separate them. But the reality is, is we have to stand up against every single one of them with the spiritual tenacity. We have to go at it. We have to say, we have to realize the forces of the world and stand against the, the things that push us. We've got to close our eyes. We've got to make covenants in our heart not to look lustfully upon a woman. We have to make a desire to be selfless in our giving. We have to be generous people if greed is our problem. The outside of the world, we have to fight against the world's influence. We have to realize that Satan and demonic forces are real. We we don't want to admit that sometimes. We want to say, oh, that's a, that's a nice fairy tale that somebody came up with. But they are real. And they are working in this world. And until we acknowledge their existence, we can't fight them effectively. And we have got to have God replace our flesh with a new heart. With a new spirit. The spirit of God. We've got to fight with the spirit of God against our flesh. We can't just pick one and blame our sin problem on it. We've got to fight against the entire thing. And then Paul sums up here in Ephesians 1 through 2, chapter, chapter 2, 1 through 3. He sums all this up of what it looks like in the before picture with probably the most un uncomfortable descriptor in all the passage. He says, we were by nature objects of wrath. So if dead wasn't bad enough, and if enslaved wasn't bad enough, now we are the objects of the wrath of God. It's a pretty hopeless before picture. Out. 
It means God's holy anger against sin and judgment. And the result of it is all focused on us. Not on our actions, but on us. We are dead. We are by nature, by essence, objects of wrath. We don't talk about, about the wrath of God. Uh, it might not be politically correct to do so. Perhaps it's because we tend to see the wrath of God as being opposed to the love of God and feeling like we have to choose one, we pick love 90% of the time, right? This is what we love to hear. We love to go to church and hear about the love of God, the peace of God, the hope of God. We don't want to talk about the wrath of God, but the problem is, is when you separate them, you don't have God, right? It's, it's each blade of a double-edged sword of justice, right? There has to be love and there has to be wrath, otherwise there's no God. You've created a false God. Maybe uh, <coughs> Rob Bell, he was, a, he was a great preacher teacher for a long time. And then he went down the path to separate God's wrath and judgment with love. And he tore away the judgment of God and came up with a book that became very popular, Love Wins. Anybody ever read it? Love Wins. And, and he's, he's got some good things to say right up until he separates the sword. He splits it apart and he makes a new God. A new God that doesn't have wrath. They have to go together. Think about it like this. If... If God cannot be completely loving if he does not hate things that rob us from knowing him. He cannot be completely loving us if he does not hate the sin that separates us from him. And similarly, he cannot be wrathful if he doesn't care enough about us to do something about it. Right? So if, if he's just a wrathful God, what's his wrath directed towards? It's something that he's angry about that he loved is being hurt. So you can't, you can't separate them. God either loves and is wrathful or he is not God. Here's the deal. What the scripture says is that people, that, that God's word says that every person's before picture, every person's before picture is dead, enslaved, and by nature were objects of wrath. Now, that might perk some of your ears and your hearts. You might there's something inside of you like, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not good with that. I'm not good with that. I'm not good that everyone is under that, that picture, has that before picture. Think, think about, think about the, the, the people in the deep, dark jungles in South America. They've never heard the gospel. There's no churches. They don't have an opportunity to hear the gospel. What about them? Is God just going to exhibit his wrath on them? Is he just going to lay his wrath on them? What about love? What about grace? What about mercy? Are they dead? Are they enslaved? Are you saying that every person on the face of the planet before Christ is an object of God's wrath? No, I'm not saying that. God's word is saying that. It's saying very clearly, and I'm just repeating it. It's not a personal theology. It's just the truth. Apart from the grace of God, we are objects of wrath. So here's what we have to wrap our heads around. When we have to get our hearts... Uh, dug into. Being, being spiritually dead and enslaved does not mean that the people in the deep, dark parts of the jungle of Africa or, or the deep, dark parts of the jungles of South America are not valuable to God. It's not that because they are, are dead and enslaved and obscurate that they're not valuable. No, they have to be valuable. Or if God did not want to love them and see them as valuable, he never would have sent Christ to die for any of us. Because we were all at one point apart from the gospel. Before Christ came, we were all dead in our sins. Jews, Gentiles, the entire world, we were all dead in our sins. 
all enslaved to the flesh. That's what Paul's saying. Like you, we also were enslaved to our sin. He's, he's talking about the Jew side, right? He, first he starts out with the you and then with the we. The harsh reality is that outside of Christ, people perish eternally. People we care about, people we love, people we work with, people who are great mothers and fathers, they're great business owners, they're ideal citizens, they have wonderful marriages. All those people will, according to the Bible, uh, as God's revealed truth, will perish apart from something something happening. Something has to happen for there to be an after picture. As the book, the four picture been clearly painted. Do you see what the word says is true about this? It can't get much worse. But just like those pictures earlier, there's an after. It doesn't just stop with this hopeless, you're all dead, you're all enslaved, you're all objects of wrath, enjoy your day, have a great day, go home and think about it, contemplate it, memorize it. No, there's an after picture because there was an event. Right? So let's go to verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, this is it. even when we were dead in our transgressions, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the age to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith not of yourself, it is a gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one can boast. Here is the after picture. Verse 4 begins with the most beautiful word in all of Scripture. What's the first word in verse 4? But. Alright, so, before I get too crazy with this, uh, when I was a youth pastor, I was invited to speak at World Changers. So it's a room full of high schoolers, and we're all on a mission project here in Durham. And uh, I was preaching on this verse, and I got really excited about that word. Right? I was like, but you were dead, but God. But you were enslaved, but God. It's the but God. The but God is the most amazing thing. The but God. And like you, you're snickering right now. You're like, the but? The B-U-T-T God? The what? You're all snickering right now. Some of you are smiling. That's the entire high school gym just starts laughing. Hysterically. I'm like, this is serious. What are you laughing? I was like, oh, the but God. Not good. It's not the but God. It's the word but. B-U-T. But. There's, it's the conjunction there. This is amazing. But. Something happened. This was your picture before. But. But God. I've been a paramedic for a long time. I've run a lot of cardiac arrest in my day. I've never walked into a room and seen a dead person bring themselves back to life. I've never seen a before picture change itself. <coughs> Something had to happen. A bit had to happen. Providers had to get down and do chest compressions and breathe life-giving air into the lungs and give medications that stimulate metabolic activities. No, the dead person never saves themselves. But someone comes to the rescue. But God. Notice this text. The labor that is done to save is once again on Him. It's on God. Heart change can only come through a work of the Holy Spirit. Those in the state of death cannot make themselves alive by working their dead out. Right? Life has to be given to them. The first verse in the after section places the focus squarely on the Father, God. 
Paul mentions both God's love and God's mercy, and he specifically says, he emphasizes this idea of the, the butt being surrounded by love. With God who is rich in love in which he loved us, right? The repeating it is the emphasizing love and God's rich mercy for us. Because of these two amazing things, God's mercy and God's love for us, something happened. First, we were made alive. We were made alive. He performed a spiritual resuscitation on us. It's only natural and logical that when, the, when we start with death, the first thing he's got to do is make us alive. This is our testimony. It's our witness. It's uh, that we were once spiritually dead, but now we are alive. The incredible truth jumps out in, in, in the text, and it leads to verse 8. It points to how all of this is by grace. All of this is by grace. We are saved from hopelessness, saved from eternal death, saved from the world, saved from our enemies, saved from our enslavement to sin. We are saved by grace through faith. We are made alive. And then the second thing that happened is we were lifted up. We weren't just made alive and then said, enjoy the world. We were made alive and then lifted up with Christ Jesus. To understand what Paul's talking about, you've got to go back to what Lance was preaching about last week. Chapter 1. Verses 20 to 21. It says, These are the, in accordance to the works of the, of the strength of his might, which he brought about in Christ, when he raised him up from the dead and seated him at the right hand of the heavenly places, far above the, all rule and authority and power and dominion, that every name is named, not only in this age, but in the age to come. Right? Christ was lifted up, and then we are made alive and lifted up with Christ. The focus here is on the power of Christ to, to overcome everything. And then we come to verse 6 in chapter 2. We were lifted up with Christ. Does it really, say, does it really mean that like, we're, our, our, our status in this world is no longer just stuck here? We are lifted up. It literally does say that. It exactly says that. Remember Lance getting excited last week? And it was kind of quiet like this. Um, and Lance was like, do you, do you get that we are, God is up here, he's the head, and we're his body, and all things are under his feet, which are under us, you remember him getting excited about it? And, he, and there was this like dead silence just like it is right now. <laughs> I feel you. <laughs> do, do you get it? Like, the whole world is put under dominion of the body of Christ. Everything is under our feet because we are now in him and lifted up with him. We're not just aliens and strangers in this world. No, we are citizens of a kingdom of heaven. We are lifted up right hand of God the Father. Our souls, our being, our essence, who we are is in Christ and we are lifted up with Him. So that means that everything in this world is under the power of Christ and Christ is in us. Therefore, it is under our power. All this sin, all this demonic influence, all this disgusting pull away from the world, it's under our authority. It does not have authority over us anymore because we are lifted up in Christ. We're no longer slaves. We sing that song a lot here. We're no longer slaves. We are a child of God. We are children of God. Why, why would God do such a thing? Why would he lift us up? The answer is in verse 7. So that in the age to come, he might show his surpassing riches of grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. He lifted us up. He had to elevate us out of this world and put us in and with Christ so that we can know the love he has for himself. 
So that we could, in the age to come, we could have the riches of the mercies of God extended to us in Christ. He didn't just make us alive and then leave us here. He brought us into his family and showed us his great love. When we claim to be children of God, what people need to see is the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in kindness. That's what they need to see in the way we live our life. My prayer for us and for myself and for you is that people all around us will see God's great love and grace through us. That they would be able to taste and see that he is good because of how he raised us up and made us spiritually alive. And he did this by grace. Verse 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith and not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one should boast. This brings us to the heart of the gospel. This is the beauty of it. Verse 8 and 9 are so often memorized, but we forget 10. we got to read 10. We'll get there. But there's a good reason, because it, it just powerfully illustrates and states an incredible message of salvation. It's all by grace. It's not of us. It's by grace. It's really simple. Salvation by grace through faith. What more needs to be said? Right? God's grace is offered. We receive it. But we go off and we think that we have to earn it. Like, we, we don't really want to receive it, but we go off and earn it. The incredible simplicity of the gospel of Jesus is this. Because of great, God's great love, God offers us a gift of salvation, and all we have to do is express faith. It's all about God. It's all about what He did, what He's doing, what He's done. He is the main character in this story. We're, we're sub-characters. We're, we're extras. He's the one that pours out grace and saves us. I don't know why it's hard for us to get that, why we can't just accept the gift, but maybe it's part of the devil's plan to make us think we have to constantly earn him. Maybe it's the fleshly desires in us to want to have to control everything, the things we're enslaved to. But we have been set free from that. Do you struggle with that? Do you struggle with wanting to earn God's favor constantly? Wanting to, to prove your love for him through your works? Yeah. I do. I mean, it's a constant struggle to, to go back to this verse that by grace you've been saved well. Not by you. Not by what you're doing. By the grace of God. By the work of God in Christ Jesus. That's a beautiful picture, right? And it has a future of hope. that's not dependent upon us. It leaves one answer question, though. Why us? Why would he save us? Like, he could have just expressed all this stuff some other way. But why did he come and save human beings? Why would God do this? He's love and he's just, right? Why give us such a hope and a testimony of being alive and lifted up? Well, he says it in verse 10. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared before us so that we can walk in them. We are God's workmanship. Everything is created for a purpose. And Paul goes and shows us our purpose, to do good works. And there's a wonderful balance here. Listen to this. There's almost a tension between verse 9 and verse 10. Right? Verse 10 says, go do good works that God prepared. And verse 9 says, you weren't saved by your works. There's a tension there. And that's why we need to memorize verse 10 with verse 8 and 9. The topic of Christian works could occupy an entire sermon series. And Lance has already given me the you have four minutes block. So we're going to move on from that. But here's the deal. Works flow naturally out of the fact that we have been made by the craftsmanship of God. God prepared things beforehand for us to do, to glorify himself. 
not to save ourselves. Right? They're, they're, our works are response to God's grace. They're not solicitors of God's grace. It's critical that we grasp that differentiation. Like, because it's extremely important for us to be motivated to do good works. Because we're children that are saved by grace. And, and, and God prepared them for a purpose. So we've got to get the we've got to grasp the tension. It doesn't affect our salvation, but it shows our salvation, right? The last line is incredibly reassuring. God has prepared them all. God has already done all the work beforehand. We don't have to go out and invent these works. We don't have to go out and use our own creativity to come up with a way to most maximize and glorify God. He's already prepared them beforehand for us to walk in. Right, So he's called you uniquely and saved you uniquely to go and do works that he prepared for you specifically to do in this world that I can't do. That's why we have missional communities. right? That's why we set you free to love the city of Durham in the way that you are passionate about, in the way you are gifted and you are called. Because God called you to do works. Why does he save nurses and teachers? Because pastors don't hang out in emergency rooms. right? And we definitely don't go to school. We had to go to school for a long time, so now we should stay away from it. Right? Why, why does he save construction workers? Because your average missionary isn't digging a hole on the side of the road. But there are works prepared before him by those, those, those children of God saved as construction workers to do in order to glorify himself and share the gospel. Why does he, sell, why does he save personal trainers? Because Will doesn't like to sweat. Right? So I'm not going to the gym to share the gospel. I'm going to the gym to cry. So we need personal saints, we need personal trainers that are saved by grace through faith so that they can do the works of the gospel at the gym. Just kidding. If I get a chance, I'll share the gospel. But I do go and cry a lot. It's a wonderful man. Don't go to Planet Fitness in Chapel Hill if I'm ever there and I'm sobbing in the locker room. There's an incredible reality in chapter 1 and chapter 2, and that is that God is sovereign he is in control, and He is saving us, not for ourselves, but for Him, for His glory, for His, for He can express His great kindness and His grace to us, so that He can work in this world to bring glory to Himself, so that He can execute the least amount of wrath He has to, because He showed the maximum amount of love He could. He's working, and we are God's workmanship. Saved and sent to do good works, prepare for us before Him. God has a ridiculous love and a high value for the people all around us. He's revived us and set us free to go tell them that. We have a responsibility to share that good news in our gospel. Because of the status of who He is, how He raised us up and made us alive. So I want to conclude with these three concepts. First, which picture is your life in right now? Are you in the before picture described in verses 1 through 3, dead, enslaved to sin, an object of wrath? Are you in the after picture, alive and lifted up? Where are you? Because I want you to know that the grace of God is extended to you right now. You, you are hearing the truth of the gospel, that you can't save yourself. You can't. But God loves you and sees you as incredibly valuable so much that he left glory and became flesh and then went through the payment of your sin penalty on your behalf when he went to the cross. And he conquered sin right there for you. And then three days later, he conquered death for you. So that this is how he makes us alive. He's alive. And he gives us his life. 
you can have that life and you can be lifted up, a citizen of the kingdom, a child of God, and, and he wants so desperately, according to the scripture, to express the riches of his kindness and mercy towards us in Christ Jesus. You don't have to stay in the before picture. You can move from before to after simply by expressing faith in the work of Christ. That's the event that happened. Remember in the before and after pictures, there, were, there was teeth and then there was dental work. Something had to happen and then there was a smile. But what had to happen was the cross of Christ and the resurrection from the grave. It is historically, it has happened, and now it is for you to believe in faith. Number two, do you know what grace really means? Have you wrestled with and accepted the fact that you can't save yourself? Have you wrestled with the fact that you have no control over your ability to become alive? That the Holy Spirit has to come into you and make you alive so that you can make a confession of faith. Like, do, you, do you get that you have no control over it? That this is completely by the unmerited favor and love of God towards you? If not, I want you to wrestle with grace this week. I want you to think about what, how is that going to change your worship? How is that going to change your fear of sharing the gospel? How is that going to change your mobility into the city with the gospel? When it's not about your works, but it's about the grace of God towards you. And then finally, verse 10 says, there are works for us to do. For those of us in the after picture, there are works for us to do. God has laid them out. Open your eyes to the people in your circle. Who's at your office? Who's, who do you buy your breakfast from at the McDonald's every, Sunday, uh, every morning? You know, like, who, who do you see at the cash register at the Walmart? Who is the person that God has sent you specifically to do good works for His glory? To share the gospel, to love, to express the kindness and the riches of His grace to others. Think about the people in your circle and then how you have been uniquely gifted and qualified, lifted up and made alive to be the hands and feet of Christ. Go out into the city of Durham and glorify God. Let's pray.